All right, so tonight we begin a five-week series on the grace of God, and I want to get to not just the generalities of what the Bible means by grace, but what I'm calling some of its sharp edges. When the Bible talks about grace, it doesn't just uh, want you to think of something vague. It wants you to think of something very specific. In fact, the Bible gives you a lot of very specific truths about how God shows grace to sinners. And so I'm calling this series a sinner's guide to the doctrines of grace. This is one sinner trying to help fellow sinners understand how in the world God can save people like us. Uh, and to do that, we're going to look at five uh, pretty famous ideas related to the grace of God. They've been famous throughout church history, and I think they deserve to be famous again. So we're going to make them, we're going to try to make them famous, at least amongst us. Now, let me explain why I want to do this. It's not just for academic knowledge. Uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 that the heart is strengthened by grace. Hebrews 13, 9. In that passage, he's telling people, hey, if you want to grow as a Christian, don't go looking for some other philosophy that the Bible doesn't teach you. Don't go looking for some other religious practice that human beings have invented. Instead, get deeper in your understanding of grace as revealed in the Bible. Because the more you understand about the, the amazing grace of God, the stronger your heart's going to be. And that's why I want to talk to you about it. That, that's why these ideas have, over the course of my Christian life, impacted me in a great way. And I think they're ideas that are often neglected and ignored in the wider church today. Let me read to you. Can I? Story time, except it's not a story. It's from an essay. Everybody sighed. Yeah, essay time, yes. J.I. Packer, one of my favorites. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But in 1959, he wrote this. Now, 1959 was before some of us were born. Others of you were born, but I am guarantee you, almost all of you were, at least, were young, even if you were born in 1959. You were relatively young. It might seem like forever ago, 1959. It may seem like that was in the glory days or the golden years of America. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Miss Bonnie? You got married that year. Oh, well, congrats. That's awesome. That's great. That is really, that's special. You can relate to what he's about to say. Here's what he said. This actually kind of blows my mind because he could have written this now. And the fact that he saw it in 1959 is pretty amazing. He says, There is no doubt that evangelicalism today is in a state of perplexity and unsettlement. In such matters as the practice of evangelism, the teaching of holiness, the building up of local church life, the pastors dealing with souls and the exercise of discipline, there is evidence of widespread dissatisfaction with things as they are, and of equally widespread uncertainty as to the road ahead. This is a complex phenomenon to which many factors have contributed. But if we go to the root of the matter, we shall find that these perplexities are all ultimately due to our having lost our grip on the biblical gospel. 1959. If it was true then. Yeah. Woo. Without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered that gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, 
is as a whole a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, and a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than it is, than is the new, but so to speak, it was helpful only incidentally. For its first concern was always to give glory to God. Just a little bit more. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, the old gospel. A summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. You stinging yet? <laughs> the subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference between these two things. I hope you see it. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. And he goes on to describe the five points that I want to describe to you over these next five weeks. This is from his very famous preface to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. I am going to send it to you. It, it's on, actually, you could Google it and you'll find it, but I will. It, it's, uh, Google J.I. Packer, Death of Death and the Death of Christ, and you'll find it. But I can also get it out on our email, a link to it as well. Uh, it is very, very powerful, that essay. Actually, his essay is worth the price of this book, in my opinion. All right, so tonight we start with point number one. And, and by the way, the reason why on, on your cover there's a TULIP is because these five points are sometimes remembered as the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. That goes back a little ways, but it's not from the Bible. If that acronym doesn't help you, that's okay, but it is one way of describing these five teachings about God's grace. The first one is the T, total depravity, or why sovereign grace is needed. Just to give you a preview, U is unconditional election, why sovereign, or how sovereign grace was conceived. The L is limited atonement, how sovereign grace was merited by Jesus. I is irresistible grace, or how sovereign grace was applied. And P is the perseverance of the saints, how sovereign grace is preserved by the power of God. That's just a way to think about it. So tonight, T, the bad news. 
total depravity. Why do we need sovereign grace? Why is the gospel not about me? Why is it about God? Why is it about the glory of God? Well, because the entire universe is about the glory of God. And we have twisted it and turned it around to being about us, which is the definition of what sin is. It's the reason why we need to be saved, not the way we get saved. You don't get saved by making life yet more about you, by trying to make God serve your interests. You get saved by letting go of your interests that God's interests might become your interests. All right, let's talk about that. The three passages that I I read to you, we're going to just go in order. The first one in Genesis 6 tells us the story of depravity. The second one in Romans 3 shows us the scriptures on depravity. And then the final one in Ephesians 2 gets us towards the solution to depravity. Let's look together. First of all, there's a story uh, of depravity in the Bible. And that's, that's uh, there in Genesis 6 where it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Uh, Now, somebody tell me, what is the context of Genesis 6? You can look at your Bible and look at the headings to find out. The flood. In fact, uh, chapter 6, verse 5 describes what happened before God flooded the earth. And it actually shows you the reason why God flooded the earth. Because he looked and he saw that the wickedness of man in the nine generations or more between Adam and Noah, the wickedness of man had not gotten better, had not improved on its own, but actually had gotten worse. It had reached such a high level that those who worshiped God were beginning to freely intermarry and raise families with those who didn't. And so what ended up happening was you had most of the people in the world who didn't worship God. And so the wickedness of man had, be, had been able to flourish and grow its poisonous fruit deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where God made the decision to destroy everybody in a flood. The wickedness in God's eyes was so great of humanity that God was going to wipe them out in a single act of judgment. Now Noah and his family were saved... Not because Noah was not also a sinner like everybody else in the world. Actually, in chapter 6, verse 8, if you have your Bible open, it goes on to tell you that the only reason Noah was saved from all this mess is very simple. Not because Noah was special or because Noah was good and everybody else was bad. It was because Noah found grace in God's eyes. God simply decided to show mercy to Noah. And by extension to you and I, to the whole human race, because it was through Noah that the whole race was preserved for future generations. Everybody on earth was so sinful that God decided to wipe them out. Now, what was it about their sin that God found most disturbing or distasteful? Look at chapter 6, verse 5. Was it the outward actions or the inward attitudes from which the actions came? It was the second one, right? He says it in a very powerful way, I think, very powerful. 
Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Total corruption. Total depravity. Uh, the intention of the thought of the heart. That's three levels deep <laughs> into a human being. The intentions, the thoughts, the heart. All the way down from top to bottom, what God saw in man was corruption. Now that corruption came, we know, from nine or more generations before when Adam and Eve decided to sin in the Garden of Eden. They, of their own free will, they, by, on the basis of their own liberty, decided to rebel against God and eat the fruit God told them not to eat. That act of sin brought not only them, but all of their, their descendants into guilt and along with that guilt came an inner corruption. They lost the original uprightness or righteousness that God had designed them with. God designed people to be good. He designed people to obey, to listen to his voice. After Adam and Eve, no one did. And they, they, they didn't, not because simply that they kept repeating the same mistake Adam did. They didn't because their hearts were now completely twisted away from God. And so when God saw the earth, he didn't just see individual people deciding to do individual acts of sin. He saw people doing acts of sin because their hearts were completely messed up and completely opposite of everything he, he has commanded them to do and wanted them to do. This is the Bible's teaching on sin. You are not a sinner because you commit acts of sin. You commit acts of sin because you are a sinner. It's nature out. It's heart out. Exactly what Jesus meant when he said you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree, if it were really good, it would bear good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. And so he says, out of the abundance of man's heart comes all the sins of the world. Whether you're talking about adultery or you're talking about murder or you're talking about you know, lying or stealing or breaking the Sabbath or what, whatever the sins are that you want to think about, Jesus says they flow out of that poisoned well, that poisoned fountain, which is at the very center of a person from Adam on. We're born into this. We don't choose our way into this. We're born into it because Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden. And just like if, say, our president or congress decided tomorrow to declare war on our behalf we would all be at war whether we personally like it or not because they're the appointed representative well adam was not just appointed by popular vote because there was nobody to take a vote from he was appointed by god which is even greater um, and he represented everybody and so when he sinned we sinned when he sinned we also inherited the corruption that adam was rightfully given over to. We become bad fruit trees. When God looks out over humanity, he does not see, here are the good ones and here are the bad ones. The good ones I can work with, let me work with them, but the bad ones I can't work with, so I'm going to take them away. He looks at the human race and he sees nothing but bad ones. And so he says, they all deserve judgment. A flood will come. However, my grace will not be stopped. I will save a people. I am determined to have a people that belong to me. 
And so Noah found favor with God, and eight persons were saved through Noah's boat. The story of depravity is a story from Adam onward of how all human beings are wrecked, not just at the level of decisions or at the level of actions, but even deeper than that, at the heart level. When we judge sins, we tend to look at it like this. That sin looks really bad, so it must be worse than that one. Right? Or we say, that sin really hurts a lot of people more than that one, so this one must be worse than that one. We do all those kinds of human calculations. Apparently, when God looks at sin, he looks deeper than that. And sometimes, and we saw this this morning with Saul, a sin might be outwardly almost innocent looking to us. We think, what's the big deal? Saul offered a sacrifice 10 minutes early. He was just excited to get it going, right? But God saw, God saw what was really going on, and that is what offends God. God is holy, holy, holy. God has done nothing but give life to this world. God has done nothing but sustain this world in its life. God has done nothing but bless and give opportunities to men and women and boys and girls. He deserves nothing but the best treatment. And yet from the heart, human beings give him the worst treatment. We treat him like his holiness is no big deal. Our hearts are not aligned with him. Our hearts are not very concerned with him. We're much, much, much more concerned with ourselves. Sin. Depravity. God saw the wickedness was great, and he saw right into the heart. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I can't imagine a darker picture than that. Now, I don't have to tell you probably that this isn't always preached or taught or explained like this. Um, you know, most of the time when people talk about sin, they, they tend to talk more on a human level. You know, make sure you don't do those outwardly bad things that will embarrass you or embarrass me. We think about it in terms of damage control, human damage control. We don't think, don't offend the holiness of God. Don't offend his majesty. Don't sin against his grace. This is what people understood, I think, when J.I. Packer's talking about the old gospel and the new gospel. When you read the old writers about the Bible, they understood this way better than we do, usually. Not always, but usually. They understood. One Puritan, for example, said this, you know, sin is like, you know, a kid taking a, a knife that his dad gave him to cut up his meat and stabbing his father with that knife. You know? That, that's what we do to the Lord. Wow. I don't know if that kind of weightiness or that kind of just humility washes over you when you think about sin, but it ought to. It's, a, it's an ugly, awful thing. And it's not just because it hurts other people, although that's important. It's because it offends the majesty of Almighty God. And we ought to be really concerned about that. Because God, after all, is in control. In our lives are our life and our death. Our heaven and our hell are in His hands. Should we not? Should we not care? That's the story of depravity. And we could trace that all the way through the whole Bible. There's not a single character in the Bible save one who is not totally depraved. 
Now, there are many saved in the Bible, and that's great. We're going to be talking about that a lot over the series, but all of them started out totally depraved, every one of them, except one. And how was Jesus not totally depraved? This is a theological question for you to think about. How, how did it come about that Christ was born as a man, but yet not totally depraved? What's that? He did, yeah. How did he come to have that, though, if... Right. Virgin birth. This is why it's so important to believe that, y'all. It's not, we're not just believing in the virgin birth because, you know, it's a cool idea that gets us excited at Christmas time. We believe it's the only way that God secured a man who was not a sinner. Because he was conceived of a woman, so he was an actual man, but the Holy Spirit overshadowed her so that what was conceived of her was holy rather than corrupt like we all are. If he had just been a man, he could not have saved the world because he would have needed saving, which is something that the Bible very clearly states in numerous places about Jesus. So the story of depravity. Any more thoughts on the story before I go to the scriptures about depravity? Yes, sir, Brian. Yes. Right. He was not. Yeah, yeah. And the reason he was not is he was born uniquely, not in the line in the same way that we are. So that's why the Bible was able to describe him as the second Adam, the last Adam. Because he, you know, there are the two unique individuals that were born of God. Adam and Jesus. That's it. All of human history. There's just two of them. And uh, so that, yeah, he was not under Adam's um, covenant of works in that same way. Although he did fulfill the covenant of works by obeying the Father fully. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. All right. Secondly, let's look at the scriptures. So the scriptures don't just give us a story. They give us a doctrine, a teaching about what depravity looks like. Go with me to that Romans 3 passage. Romans is a doctrinal book. Uh, Paul is trying to make a logical case for the gospel, why the gospel is real and true. And in Romans 3, he's at this issue. He's trying to convince everybody, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, that all of them are sinners who need to be saved. Um, you know, we could say it differently today, possibly. We, we could say, whether you're raised in a Christian home or not, there is a special thing to be raised in a Christian home, just like there was a special thing to be a Jew in the Old Testament. But that does not mean you're not born a sinner or that you don't need a Savior. And I think all the Christian parents Amen. get that instinctively, you know, at least after a little while, you pick up on that, right? But that's what Paul is trying to make a point about. And so he says, are Jews any better, better off? Verse 9. Not at all, for I have already said, everybody, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then, what does he do? As it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, and you can, maybe if you have a Bible with footnotes or side notes, you can see uh, he's quoting from Psalm 14, and then Psalm 53, and then he quotes from Psalm 9, and then he quotes from Psalm 140, then he quotes from Psalm 10. Then Proverbs 1, then Isaiah 59, then Psalm 36. He's quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting from the wisdom books, he's quoting from the prophets to show 
uh, what this depravity that we have in Adam, that's in all of us, what it actually looks like in our lives. And this string of quotations is, well, the only word to use for it is damning. This is a damning list of quotations. Uh, None is righteous. None? Mother Teresa? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one? Not John Calvin? No one understands, right? No one seeks for God. No one? Not Martin Luther? No one naturally seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have together become, this is harsh, worthless. This not meaning that human beings are in every way worthless because of sin, but meaning in terms of what God designed us for, we are worthless. We are not any good for what God designed us for without grace. Because no one does good, not even one. Look at that. No one does good. Wait a minute. I thought people did good all the time. They give money away to people. They help those who are in need. No one does good. Paul says no. Not even one. And then he describes what I call the anatomy of total depravity. He says every body part from head to toe and even the parts of the ground that the body parts touch becomes stained with sin. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the path on which the feet walk and the ways on which the feet go, the eyes. Did you see that? Every single part of human beings, every part, the speaking, the thinking, the seeing, the acting, all of it, full of sin, full of poison. That's what it means by no one does good. He's not saying that people don't do good things that we might call good, right? So someone who writes a check to the Cancer Society, yes, we all agree they did a good thing there. But what he's speaking about is from God's judgment perspective. Does anyone do anything that can actually pass God's inspection? Remember, God's the one who looks into the heart, to the thoughts of the intentions of the heart. Does anybody do that spiritual good that could save them? That's what he's talking about. No, nobody can do that. And even the good things they do, which are outwardly good, like giving the check to the cancer center, really those also are enabled by a sustaining or a common grace of God, which God is exercising in the world to keep the world from becoming as bad as it could be. Uh, Don't you all know the world is not as bad as it could be? Right? Praise God. The Lord restrains evil people from doing evil things that they would do if they were to have the opportunity or the means to do it. God restrains by the threats of his law. There there are people who don't commit murders because they're afraid of getting caught or they're afraid of going to hell, and that's a blessing of God because who knows what would happen if they didn't have that restraint because the picture that the Bible gives is a picture of restless and reckless evil. A pursuit of everything that is against God with every part of who we are. Say, man, this is awful dark. Yes. In fact, the teaching of the Bible on grace 
will not wow you or amaze you unless you understand this. It won't. You, you, won't, you will not be moved by it. You'll sing amazing grace and it'll just be words. Unless you understand just how deep the Father had to go to love somebody like you. And somebody like me. There was no good in my throat. There was no good in my lips. There was no good in my tongue. There was no good in my mouth. There was no good in my feet, on my pass, in my way, or in my eyes. No good. Totally under the sway of sin. Totally given over. As Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Bound by it and unable to unbind themselves. I think most Christians, especially those who were converted at a later date than childhood, know this. And some that were converted in childhood know this too, but they probably know it in a different way. But those who were converted as adults, you knew, right, that God found you in a state that you could not have possibly gotten yourself out of. Right? Grace found you. You found grace. It was like, wow, all of a sudden, boom, the surprise of grace came in. Unexplained, unmerited, uneven asked for in many cases. God came. Clean the throat, clean the tongue, clean the lips, clean the feet, clean the paths. Made you new. Many people know that by experience. And, and even those who were converted young and maybe don't have quite the same pre-conversion life experience, still, over time, at least this is how I've experienced it, my sin has continued on just, you know, in many ways since I was converted. Don't y'all know that's true? Sin remains. I don't have to tell you that. And so God, one of the reasons I think why he does it that way, keeps sin within us, is to remind us of what he saved us from. And what we could have been completely given over to. But he's only allowed a little bit of it to remain. Because he intends to kill it all. Wow. The scriptures paint a dark portrait of man. But, but I think this. Those who have tried to soften the portrait. And, and most of the time people trying to soften it are those within the church. Teachers who try to soften this. Because, again, we're trying to make a gospel that's helpful, that's, you know, fetching to people. Like, hey, come hear me talk to you about how terrible you are. is not often very fetching. And so we want to try to dress it up. And most of the time when people have done that, that has been the root of some of the gravest theological errors. The gravest errors about God. People look at this and say, oh, yeah, no one's good, no, not one. But my heart is still pretty good, right? Right? I have good intentions. My will's free, right? I can choose anytime I want to turn my back on my sin and just come to Jesus. I don't need God's help for that. I can just choose it. Or my thoughts are okay. I, I can reason well. Sin doesn't affect the way I reason. Hmm? Since when? As George Whitfield, the great preacher, said, you got free will, all right, free will enough to go to hell. 
But you do not have the free will to go to heaven unless God sets your will free. That's total depravity. Your free will will get you to hell apart from God. But it cannot turn you around without the grace of God first turning your will. That's the universal teaching of Scripture from one beginning to the end. No variation to that. You say, well, the Bible calls people to believe and repent. Yes, it does. But it also says faith is a gift and repentance is a gift. So there's, a, there's certainly a paradox there. God calling you to do something you can't do without him. But isn't that the way God does everything for sinners? <laughs> didn't, didn't Jesus say to the lame man, take up your bed and walk? Was that because the guy, his problem was, well, he could just needed to decide to get up. No. Didn't he say to dead Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth? Now, was it Lazarus exercising his free will in the grave that busted him out of there? No. Listen, I believe in the human will. Absolutely. I believe God made us with a will. But I don't believe my will is part of my salvation. (laughs) And I don't think the Bible means for us to take from it that the will is a, a, a part of the, you know, the formula of salvation. Will, rather, is a part of the formula of death and of sin. The scriptures on depravity. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Notice there, verse 11, no one seeks God. That gets right to the issue of will. Nobody wants God, really. I mean, people want God in a pinch, sure. People want God to give them what they want, sure. But who wants God? Only the person whom God has awakened to his beauty and to his glory. All right, which leads us to the final phase here from Ephesians 2. There's a solution to depravity, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our weeks really looking at is the solution. But I just want to give you a preview of it. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? Uh, It does not say, You were awful sick. You were crippled, uh, you were weak, you were dead. Okay, Lazarus. That's the picture you should get in your mind. Lazarus. Behold, Lord, he stinketh. That was, that's the King James version of that story, right? It's been four days. He stinketh. That was you. That was me apart from Jesus. We stinketh and are unable to get ourselves out of death. Of course, how can a dead man resurrect himself? Notice what it says. We were dead. We followed Satan, which is what it means by the prince of the power of the air. We followed our own desires, the passions of our flesh. We carried out desires of body and mind. We were by nature born children of wrath under God's curse like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. Did you know that? But God, being rich in mercy. Same thing as Noah, right? Everybody was evil all the time, thoughts and everything. God was going to wipe them out. But Noah found favor with God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Lazarus, come forth. And with the command to come forth, Christ gave the power to do it. By causing Lazarus' life to come back into his dead body. 
And so the call of the gospel that says, repent and believe the good news, turn from your sin, trust Jesus, embrace him for salvation. That call also needs the resurrecting touch of the Holy Spirit to be answered. That doesn't mean we don't bring the call to every single person that comes across our path that we have the opportunity to. We should tell everybody to believe in Jesus. But we know it because we know it about ourselves. We would have never responded. In fact, many times we did reject it until the Lord God gave the power of resurrection along with the outward call of the gospel. We were trapped. We were dead. We were in a tomb until the one who is himself, the resurrection and the life, gave us life. Now listen. Salvation is not a joint venture between you and God. Okay? It is not you do your part, God does his part, or God did his part so that you can now do your part. That ain't it. Um, If any of it depended on me, none of it would happen. For all the reasons we just read in the list of verses that Paul gave, right? I'm not good. I don't do good. I don't think good. I don't speak good. I don't walk good. Nothing's good. How could I? But when God gives his almighty grace, this making alive, this resurrection grace that's described there in verse 4 and 5, It's then that salvation becomes realized. Not a joint venture between God and me, but God's work to do for me and in me what I could never do for myself. Total depravity means total inability to save yourself. We cannot contribute anything at all to our salvation except the sin part that we need to be saved from. We can't even prepare ourselves for salvation or even freely of our own will without any help from God choose to accept Christ. Both faith and repentance are gifts of God given to us. As soon as someone enters the gates of the kingdom it says repent and believe and someone walks through those gates they can turn around and look at the other side of the gates and it says no one can come to me but those whom the Spirit has drawn He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. That's why you're here. He loved you. He gave you grace. He saw you in your death and raised you to life. What wonder that is. That's why John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He believed these five points that I'm going to talk to you about. He positively did. And wrote about them all the time. Taught about them all the time. And that's the only reason he was able to write such a song. If he had embraced the thin, weak gospel of today, he wouldn't have wrote Amazing Grace. That song's too much about God. Boring, right? Many people think. But if we're not about God, what are we about? Huh? Right? I mean, stop for a minute and think about that. If Christianity, if church, if the Bible is not ultimately about God, what in the world are we doing here? There's some good NFL games going on right now. And most people, many people make that choice. But unfortunately, it's a bad choice. 
Because this is about God. And God matters more than any other thing in the world. And one of the ways you know that is that even when we and all of our forefathers wrecked everything, willfully and stubbornly, God still chooses to show grace and mercy. And thus we are here alive tonight, hearing his gospel, learning about how we can turn to Christ, learning about how he turns us to himself and loves us. Wow. Listen now to this last quote. This is what I'll leave you with. This is from Ian Hamilton. To be confronted with the truth of our total inability is deeply humbling. And I hope you feel some of that tonight. It's the humility. But it is the truth of God's own word. Okay, this is not a notion that John Calvin concocted in Geneva, right? It's not. Becoming persuaded of this and casting ourselves alone on God's mercy in Christ knocks the pride out of us. And teaches us to live as men and women who glory in the God of grace. This is simply another way of saying that the biblical gospel puts God where he belongs. And puts us where we belong. And at the end of the day, that is the test of authentic biblical Christianity. Putting yourself in God's place is not Christianity. Sharing the glory with God is not Christianity. It's not. It may go by the name, but it's not the thing. Christianity is God. (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorifying himself through his plan worked out in creation, providence, and redemption forever. God gets the glory. God does the work. God shows the grace. God loves even those whom he sees nothing good in apart from him. And he brings them to himself and he makes good out of them by his grace. T. We just finished doing all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now we're going to do five of the English alphabet. T, total depravity. Why we need the sovereign grace of God. 